trying to make it right These people won't let me go I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Let me grow, let me go Let me grow, let me go They should know, they should know They should know, they should know I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have these conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro to how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they want to talk about that week. For this week's episode of The Kettle is Hot, I am joined by my guest, Andrew Hairston. Andrew is going to actually tell us a little bit about himself. Cool. So, hey friends, my name is Andrew Hairston. I am a writer and civil rights lawyer based in Austin. I work for this organization called Texas Appleseed, focused on dismantling the school to prison pipeline in Texas and met Bree through just the social settings of Austin. And I'm so glad to have met her. And then we recognize all of our mutual interests, such as the Black Joy Mixtape and Black Feminism and <laughs> LGBTQ Equality. So, yeah, instant friends. Hello, friend. <laughs> hey, friend. <laughs> I am so excited to have you here. We were just saying that we were lucky enough to get together right before quarantine struck back in March. So, yeah. Our thing is to go to coffee shops, these cool coffee bars around Austin. And it must have been late February when we had our last in-person meeting. And wow, how the world has transformed since then. <laughs> it's, so, it's so wild. I know I've been lucky enough to be able to continue to record during quarantine, but I'm just like, my heart goes out to those who are just like home doing nothing. <clears throat> Well, I mean, doing nothing by like relaxing or like not having to work, but I'm just like, I, I would be biting at the bit. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. Well, I really am excited to talk to you today about this topic. I think it is very relevant, um, especially with everything going on right now in the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. And you wanted to talk about the school, the prison pipeline and the prison industrial complex within the current wave of Black Lives Matter, um, Black Lives Matter uprising. Um, the school to prison pipeline has been something really on my mind, especially because I used to work in education. For sure. And not even that, but just how much our schools look like jails. And I don't think people really understand like how much, like between, you know, being told where to go and at what time, having to ask to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. um, being like corralled together and just like how much our schooling like isn't as I don't even know the word as um, fluid and open and right. know, in, intuitive and, you know, le- leaving space for innovation, really. It's just really, really finite. So, yeah. Uh, well, first, like, what made you pick this topic? Yeah. So my nine to five is 
I'm an education justice project director at this organization called Texas Appleseed. It reaches a public interest justice center based in Austin. Uh, but prior to taking the job last year, I've been doing the work in DC for two racial justice organizations at the national level. And both of those organizations had me focus on dismantling the school to prison pipeline. And I couldn't put it any better, Brie. I think that schools, so many schools across the country are just these small prisons and are just counterintuitive to human nature, especially for young people, right? There is absolutely no flexibility. These very rigid schedules that kids have to follow, this very kind of do what I say because I'm the adult mindset. And if you don't, there will be a punitive approach to discipline you. And of course, we see that most prominently with black and brown children, LGBTQ young people and kids with disabilities. And so, yeah, in this moment, these current Black Lives Matter protests, I just feel like it's extraordinary, the movement that we are seeing, these tangible ways to dismantle the school to prison pipeline that I couldn't have even envisioned a couple of months ago. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you said, like, you said, you just said something and it made me click in my brain how much in school suspension looks like solitary confinement mm. Mm. and in that i don't know where that like <laughs> repressed memory just came from because i mean i was a goody two-shoes like i never had in school but like we would still like have to like every morning have to like walk up and give um a teacher would like have you run and give assignments to the students in in school for and sure, I just right. and I just okay. remember it being like down this random hallway that you, like you wouldn't even know it existed, right? Like in the cut, it was in yeah. the cut and just like this very tan, like neutral color door. So like you would like just pass it, like it blended into the wall essentially. Mm. And going in and like each, like even like the way the room was set up was just like separated desks. Like they couldn't even like talk to each other. Like they'd have to literally shout to be heard. So being able to like talk to other kids and in school was impossible. Oh my God. That just, (laughs) that just really clicked in my brain of how much, you know, and especially like I, I was raised in a product, like in a pretty um, diverse town, but even still like seeing how many still, how many Brown children would be Brown and black children would be in, in school suspension is, is, I don't know where that memory just came from, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you bring up another great point, right? So there have been studies to not only demonstrate the detrimental psychological impact on the kids who receive exclusionary discipline, but those who don't, who are just in the school setting, right? Because it's always this looming cloud that I can be put to these isolated cells for eight hours a day and be the one who has to receive my classroom assignments from another student and I just feel so cut off from the vault right and from my general education assignment so yeah it just impacts every single person in that school building especially the young people and another thing that I have focused on a great deal in my career and in my advocacy has been this culture of school policing I think especially since Columbine there has been this exponential increase of school police officers in schools across the country. It'll normally be like a white boy perpetrates some act of mass violence, a school shooting, and then policymakers will come in and say, 
well, we need to harden our schools and make them safer. And then black and brown majority schools receive the brunt of that, right? Receive more school police officers assigned to the campuses uh, and have to deal with that violence day in and day out. And in this moment, what I was referring to earlier, so after the police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Tony McDade this spring, you have, we have collectively witnessed school districts in places like Minneapolis, St. Paul, Columbus, Portland, Charlottesville, take significant steps to end their relationships with local police departments. And this past week, the Oakland Unified School District and school board voted to entirely disband its internal school police department, this ongoing fight for the past 10 years. And so like, I've been pushing for police free schools in my advocacy and my job, but didn't expect it quite frankly until 2025 or later, right? And so now we're just like, <laughs> catching up with it. Yeah, it's catching up with these breathtaking victories, like trying to keep the momentum going, trying to bring it to the South. It feels like an unparalleled moment. Yeah, I was talking to my friend Meg a couple weeks ago. Um, should be a later episode in this podcast on the regular feed, but cool. she's an educator. She's a white queer teacher at a charter school with a lot of youth of color. And so she is a really good ally and like calls out a lot of stuff that a lot of other white teachers let slide. But one of her the things she's really been talking about with, with the staff is why do we have so many youth so many youth of color in detention in suspension why you know why isn't that checked why aren't we talking to the teachers who send them to in-school suspension like really dismantling it from the beginning like what's the what's the root of the problem why do these teachers feel like the only answer is to kick these kids out of class and so at the end I think it was at the end of each month or the end of each quarter they do a like she now helped them to create like a essentially like a debrief of like meeting with teachers and asking why you sent this specific kid so many times to the office and just like those conversations of why is it that we are so quick to essentially jail black and brown youth in school so that and then also like you're saying like police free schools i was listening to some uh uh, the guardian youtube the other day i was watching a video Mm. about defunding the police and they were saying how essentially two, or maybe it wasn't The Guardian, it was something I was watching on YouTube, and two-thirds of colleges have police, like, essentially, like, baked in or ingrained in their campus, but then at the same time, they have police officers, but no people, like, no therapists, no psych mm. people, no, but it's that, again, of, like, why do we put so much onus and power into the police department when we can be funding and hiring people who are actually, like, educated to do these things, and and, and like you're saying about the school shooters of like, you know, it'll be a white kid out of predominantly white school, but then they like right. test it out on schools of color first. And I'm just yeah. like, yeah, I mean, every, every week I'm just like, maybe I won't have kids because every, every week is something different. And I'm just like, you know what? Maybe it's not. Look, <laughs> I admire like my sister, for instance, uh, she just gave birth four and a half months ago. And like all the people who bring children into the world, because I'm like, <laughs> can't even compute, right? Like, I'm already uh, a crazy aunt. Could you imagine as a mom? I can't handle it. And I'm I, already it, just the intense uncle, right? Like, 
I, no one is ready for that Pop for that heat. Andrew. I'm not ready for that heat. <laughs> I remember when Sandy Hook happened, I was still living yeah. in Connecticut. I was still living in Connecticut, and my n- oldest nephew was five or six. And so Sandy Hook is about like an hour from where my family lives. But like, yep. we didn't know. Like, it was the same thing when 9-11 happened. Like, we didn't know what was going on. And so For sure. I was one of the emergency people who could pick up my nephew from school. And I called my sister. She was like, he's probably safer in school than if you go like try to pick him up and something happens. I was like, yeah, but I'm like already off work. So I could just wait. Like, I'm telling her I'm going to pick up her kid. She's like, break. <laughs> I need uh, you to rein it in. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but if I'm right here already, please like she, to me. Yeah. I was like, I'm already around the corner. She's like, mm. Yeah. So I just I I that was my tangent of like I just I give so much credit to parents because I I mean I'm I'm obsessed with my nephew, my oldest nephew. Um For my sure. sister has now had two other kids and they're twins. They're twins, so she has all boys, and I'm just like oh. <laughs> I just love y'all so much. And like, yeah. and like being we give like, you the world. Right, and black, young black boys in America. Like, I, yeah. every single time I talk to her or see a picture of them, I'm just like, oh my God, like, the fear in and of that of just raising black children, period, but particularly black boys in America is just a that terrifying part. thing to think about. And then sending them to school where they're supposed to be safe, and then either their teachers fail them, or some someone comes in and, you know, there's violence in their school, but yeah that's not a yeah. topic today, but that's where my brain just went and i'm just like no no i love that thank you for for all of your perspective and your context i appreciate in your remarks you expressing that you've been looking into more resources into defunding the police and these prior conversations that have been ongoing so one resource that i've loved over the past few weeks has been aid to abolition.com so it was in response to this platform that was issued by D-Ray, like eight can't wait, right? Supposedly this set of eight policy changes would decrease police violence by 72% instantly. But there are these things like banning chokeholds and requiring a warning before shooting that a number of large police departments have in their policy documents already. And then two, just fundamentally is this reformist approach to policing, right? As opposed to an abolitionist approach. So to take a step back a bit and define the prison industrial complex a bit, I'd say in my research and understanding, it is this interwoven web of policing, security and surveilling apparatuses that received billions of dollars of funding from federal, state, and local governments to maintain this system where disproportionately black and brown people are under the control of the state, right, in some type of form. It could be in a prison or jail, or it could be on parole or probation or some type of supervision. And I think in our discussion of the school-to-prison pipeline that manifests one of the most pernicious ways that the prison industrial complex enters people's lives when they're very young. And the ATL abolition platform, in part, does call for police-free schools, right? It has police-free schools among seven other initiatives, such as investing in community and care and defunding the police that will hopefully get us to an abolitionist future. And I think that if 
follow to completion will get us to an abolitionist future. And I've just so greatly appreciated how that has been tied to this fight to dismantle the school to prison pipeline and take on these oppressive systems and community and say, look, we are calling for prison industrial complex abolition uh, and want community control over, over ourselves, especially as black and brown people. Yeah, I know like uh, people have been freaking out about conversations around defund the police, reform, abolition, and I've been trying to make it as simple as possible for people to understand, so that was really helpful. I, I thank you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I just want people to keep doing their research and, and keep being involved and not to just kind of fall back into normalcy, air quotes, yeah. of like, well, we went out and marched for two weeks, so everything's fine now. And it's like... It's done. <laughs> no, that's, that's not... Nope, sure isn't. Um, what, what is this nonsense I'm saying? Like, ally fatigue or, like... <laughs> these white people, I guess, are already getting tired of, of, like, understanding the pervasiveness of racism. Like, imagine us living for 30 years and our ancestors experiencing this for centuries right mm -hmm. every time like oh i'm just so tired i'm like get in line girl like get i've been line. tired <laughs> i had a whole like i've said it before here on the show i had uh, my friend anna on who's a nurse and so she like broke it down of like how our bodies are 80 percent water but our the water that we have passes down generation to generation it's like mm. when you say you're tired you're not like it's not just your trauma you're holding. It's generational, generational trauma. Wow. So it goes back four generations, but then also like if we remember like, so for us, it would go back to like our great, great grandmothers, right? But then remember <clears throat> some of her water came back from us as far as her great, great grandmother. So like, right. it's like <laughs> we are generationally exhausted from being oppressed. And so my, you know, a lot of my white friends who are doing this work of allyship they're like calling out their fellow white people like you do not get to say you are tired from trying to do something new for two weeks and mm. i've just been enjoying it like watching tv that has nothing to do with me I'm like uh, <laughs> thank you so much like them calling out other white people being like we get this is exhausting and tiring work and you know everything for breaks and taking care of yourself sure but you know this whole fatigue thing is like you could just you don't need to say it you can just experience it take take a minute and then come back right like agreed I think there's just yeah. a, you know, and like I've had a whole episode about performative allyship, so I won't get into that, but just like I've been really, really focusing on like the allyship clout and like really paying attention to to that whole, that whole spiel of it. So every time I see something about allyship fatigue, I'm like, oh, okay, we get it. You're doing the work, but I don't need to hear it, right? Like black people have been doing this work for years with no notoriety. And so white people, you don't, you, it's not a, it's not a, um, the show up and get a trophy sort of situation mm. like and certainly should, not a paid internship opportunity right you don't get you don't get a you don't get a participation <laughs> trophy right alternatively like, open your checkbook <laughs> yeah if you're tired of doing work just keep paying black people you're right that's what you can do instead i think i put on facebook a month ago or so like go ahead and set aside a reparations fund every month Honestly. and figure out individual black people are grassroots black-led organizations to donate to right absolutely this, yeah yeah i mean i was on a panel yesterday and we were talking about 
prison reform as one of the conversa- one of the topics. And, you know, this gentleman, Daryl Davis, who is known for like getting people out of the clan, like having conversations with clans men and giving them to give up their hood. Hmm. So at one point he made a, he brought up that, you know, when he was younger, the black population was 12% and it is still currently 12% in this country hmm. and how prison plays into that because we are jailing black men. Therefore black men aren't able to have children because they're not procreating. And I just want people to like really look at how, you know, prisons, specifically private prisons, A, are trash, but B, how much it plays into this industrial complex of like oppressing black people. Like even in ways you wouldn't think of, like already like, sure, people being in jail for whatever they did, that's like one form of punishment. But then also like the fact that like now black people are jailed at a way higher rate than any other race. Mm. and how much that affects our community like what daryl has to be like in his say 50s 60s so yeah. i mean in 30 40 years it hasn't changed and the black population is still the same and that is wild to me to think about that is wild to think yeah i have been especially interested in diving into the work of black women who have been doing this research and writing for years so one i'm so fortunate that we are living in and taking up time and space with Dr. Angela Davis. I'm just so inspired by her. We aren't the worthy. San Francisco Chronicle took this picture of her at a protest in Oakland maybe a week and a half ago. And I like immediately changed my Facebook cover photo, my background on my phone to this picture. Like 76 years old, still going strong. And to think about her experiences when she was around our age, right? Like everything that went down with George Jackson and her imprisonment was in her late 20s or so. And then to see her launch into this career in academia and to publish these tomes, like her autobiography and Our Prisons Obsolete back in 2003, is just such a gift. And I'm so thankful that she is still presenting in media outlets and just sharing her perspective on the world. Also, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, I believe folks in certain circles knew about her fairly well uh, up until the spring of 2019. And then Rachel Kushner wrote this New York Times Magazine article about her entitled is prison necessary and just kind of letting you know more about Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a geographer at the City University of New York and also a prison abolitionist. And that article I think is just so well done and I can't recommend it enough. And then Mariam Kaba, who is an organizer and prison industrial complex abolitionist who tweets that prison culture has just been such a gift, I think, as I delved more into the study of the prison industrial complex and of abolitionist views on it. I think, you know, most notably and most recently, she published this New York Times op-ed, I think it's called, Yes, We Literally Mean Abolish the Police. And... (laughs) That has got to be, I think, one of the most exciting things I've read in 2020. And so, yeah, to your point, Bree, just about the 
ballooning of the prison population over the past 50 years. Then also, dare I say the solace that I take in the work across generations, through generations, against oppression, the work and the fight against these oppressive systems that have been going on, that are still going on, and that we can really take from in this moment and hopefully push to the furthest extent possible as we pursue this dream of a a world without police and prisons, right? And a world where accountability is still in place, but it is achieved through different means, like transformative justice. I think also, like, for me, it's been so interesting of, like, how many people now are even just having this conversation one, but be like really imagining what a world without police would look like. Mm. And I mean, for me, that's like something I never thought of until this year when these conversations have really been happening. But I mean, we know they've been going on for years, like with the women you just mentioned. Um, But yeah, it's, it's been interesting because like, I'm, I'm very much still in the camp of like defund and, Mm -hmm. and then let's like rehire everyone and go like that whole route. Um, but I 100% see where people sit with, you know, you can't you can't reform it. You can't reform police because their background is is so awful, right? Mm. Like you'd have to essentially recreate and and make a new and updated. And also because reform would cost way more than just defunding. Yeah. Statistically. But then, like, abolishing, I know so many people have an issue with that because, like, well, who would keep us safe? And I'm also like, well, police don't really keep us safe now. Like, <laughs> so. I think you, you referenced some studies that you were looking at. The New York Times put out maybe a couple of weeks ago an analysis of city budgets of police departments where they are made publicly available. Mm-hmm. And I think the recurring theme across these police budgets, I can't quite remember the cities, is that 4% of the time of police in these cities, fairly major cities, is spent responding to violent crimes, right? It's like 96% of their time is like dealing with other things, whether administrative issues or nonviolent activity that they're called for, right? The <laughs> these white women just calling <laughs> the police on black people uh. back to it feels like Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, that incident was three years ago, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the day before George Floyd's murder. And, like, it's showing me how time is a warp. But, yeah, I think to your point, right, is folks are examining these departments and what police actually do even more. It's like, they don't keep us safe in the way that they've been pitched, right? Or that they've been marketed by themselves or by policymakers. And so, no, I totally feel you on on thinking about these conversations and having them be ongoing. Another thing I'll say that's been frustrating for me, so it's been limited on my timeline, but I have seen it. So, like, a lot of cis-head black men have been like, well... You know, we're saying Black Lives Matter, and it seems like y'all are trying to pivot the discussion to Black women or Black LGBTQ people. Andrew? And, whoo! 
I'm like first mute mute this person, right? Andrew. <laughs> I wish everyone could see my face because this is Ooh. the most exhausting conversation. It is exhausting. I'm like, it's 2020 and y'all aren't delving into feminist or queer politics in any type of meaningful way like this. Right, but then right? still expect and, but still but still expect black women and black queer people to show up and march every time a black per, a black man is is killed or arrested wrongfully or what have you and Right. I just yeah. I mean, we we see how things happen. Like a lot I unpopular opinion it's my opinion and y'all can give it mad if you want to a lot of shit would not happen if it weren't for black women black femmes like black queer people pride would not exist if it wasn't for a black trans woman wow um black lives matter was founded by black women like yeah say that again truly and throughout history right um how the contributions of black women black queer folks black trans folks have literally pushed the movement forward and really allowed us to achieve some of the victories that we have made, but also to continue the struggles that we have. And so part of my framing of prison industrial complex abolition in this moment and to retort <laughs> against these cishet men is to say, look, as we dismantle this entire system that is descended from child slavery and slave patrols, right? It can't be divorced from its racist origins. We are envisioning a world where all black people, all emphasis black people mm -hmm. are able to thrive and flourish and live the lives that they want to live. And you know, I think abolition gets us to that point but there also is going to be have, going to necessarily be deep investment in education on understanding black feminism, for instance, right? The movement for LGBTQ equality and how folks like Marsha Johnson and Miss Major were the pioneers of Stonewall and who led us to this moment like where we're commemorating Obergefell and the Bostock decision where LGBTQ people can't be fired from their jobs for who they are, right? Like black people have done this, right? It made our more world fairer and more just. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to constantly frame my responses and the way that I engage online through that lens of, prison industrial complex abolition is a way for us to all get freer, but we are going to have to, especially for cis-head men, <laughs> right, in our community, say like, we need to contend with these issues much more and like recognize how cis-heteronormative patriarchy and all of these oppressive systems have kind of come in and taken root and need to be completely uprooted from our, our mindsets. Got nothing else to say. <laughs> hey, black people, listen hey, to black women, <laughs> listen to black queer people. Drop that cash app now. Hello, Venmo, Cash App, <laughs> PayPal, all the black people out here doing this work. Oh, I just, I just am.
I, I it's like we are how dare we want more for our lives like right like how dare we want to be included in this conversation and you know we can fight for black cis het men and also fight for black women black femmes black trans people black queer like we can chew gum and walk at the same time we can handle multiple yes. things and and you know you know liberation is for everyone not just for one group in the in the whole like we need to focus on one before we work on the other that's why we're not successful if we're mm. so siloed into thinking not only are you only have you only have one mindset but it's like you're only inviting one group of people to come fight for you and that's like wow. not going to set us up for anything so yeah i've just been trying to do a lot of work here in austin while i'm still here who knows what's happening with me moving to philly that's a whole different conversation but yeah in the time i'm here and the connections that i have and the work that i'm doing i'm trying to help amplify the voices of black people and i i i uh, talked with my friend rocky he was last week's uh kettle episode and we talked about this of like paying black people listening to them having you know if you want them to share their stories pay them for them like nothing at this point nothing is free especially like all these companies wanting people to come in and have conversations but not willing to hire more black people which is a different conversation yeah so that's also a thing too like you know we can't sit here and just put a band-aid on this like we have to literally sit and do the work and work through it and it's going to get dirty and messy and that's the only way we can we can really change things but yeah just tired i'm tired i'm allowed to say i'm tired (laughs) you're allowed you are allowed you are fully allowed and you know i think your remarks just now bring up the entire focus of it, one organization that I greatly admire is Dream Defenders, which started after Trayvon was murdered in 2012. And in my previous job at one of the racial justice organizations, we worked with Dream Defenders on school to prison issues. And I love the framework and the introduction that Dream Defenders brings to every conversation. It's like we are a socialist abolitionist internationalist feminist black organization right and i think it's so important in this moment in talking about this nation and its original sins and its inability to contend with its history in a meaningful way to say these things right like yeah i'm i'm socialist right you know we've seen how american capitalism is rooted in racism how it's more accurately described as racial capitalism uh, and the pilfering of wealth from black people across generations through the use of uncompensated or undercompensated labor uh and then this feminist view right you know recognizing angela davis did a talk for i think Girl Code might have been an organization a couple of weeks ago, and she talks about Black feminism through the lens of growing up in Birmingham, right? Like these poor Black women who held it down for each other and for community. And it just hit me right in my soul, right? I think about my mama and my aunties and my grandmothers who had passed on, and I'm like, this is that version of Black feminism. And then to think about an internationalist view, right? Thinking about black and brown people across the globe and how white supremacy and anti-black racism have played out in nations throughout the globe and how our struggles are so connected as members of the African diaspora, as black people across the earth. 
and you know how our conversations have to be linked inextricably and necessarily. Well, I thank you so much for coming on today. This oh, is, I love you, Brie. I love you. This is such <laughs> this is a so good great. chat. And yes, I've been really enjoying talking to everyone about like, hey, let's like really unpack things. Let's just take, yes. let's just sit together and talk for however long we talk for just to get it out to the ether. And I think these are such important conversations to be having, especially, you know, to black people and allowing other people to listen into the conversation. So I, I thank you so much. Um, so I'll much be love sure to, to I'll be sure to link everything in the show notes. But at the end of each show, I like to ask a final question, sort of like a sure. palate cleanser, a high note. And um, the question is usually, what is the best advice you were given, or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Mm. But I've also been letting guests be like, you can also give advice during this time. Any sort of thing yeah. that's been helping to keep you positive out here. So yeah. What's the best advice you were ever given or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self or anything you want to share with the class? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I'll go the younger self route, especially to like college, Andrew, like don't take yourself so seriously, man. Right. Like just you're on a good path. You'll continue along that path, but just bask in the black joy of your life. Right of your friends, of your family, of your community, and just be unapologetic in that. And and that's a mantra. I'll be 29 in a week and some change, and entering the last year of my 20s is like, that's the mantra right there. Unapologetically tap into the black joy. Mm. That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Bree. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Tea with Bree. Send me an email at theteawithbree at gmail.com and visit the website, theteawithbreepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music, and I will talk to y'all later this week. Bye. Bye.